Well, you can have a seat. That's the truth that we can all agree to here today. My name's Nate, lead pastor at New City. Glad to worship with you. Before we get into the teaching, we've got to talk a little football. I think that's appropriate. Uh, considering the times, like last week I predicted Seattle was going to win, and they did not. So, you know, Green Bay did come up with a victory. But I have another prediction today because I will not take failure uh, as, uh, as my reality. So I'm predicting Titans today. All right, I'm predicting the run game is going to put uh, Mahomes on the sideline. He's not going to get to play at all today because they got that beast of a running back. So that's my prediction. And as you know, I am usually wrong when it comes to these things. And so I don't mind making those predictions. Hope you enjoy football today. There is a Bible study. But before we get to that, all right, uh, it, uh, I, it, today is the three-year anniversary of Abiel and Emily's church plant, uh, Ciudad de Gracia. We planted a church uh, three years ago. Today is their birthday. Abiel sent a little thank you video. I want to draw your attention to it. Check it out. Hi, Miss This is Abiel. We celebrate three years. Thank you so much for your support, for your help, and uh, we're glad to partner with New City and be part of this big family. And, uh, you know, today we just get it done and we're going to celebrate three years that God allowed us to open the church and partner with you guys. Thank you so much. And, and uh, we wait to, we just wait, waiting to what God is doing in the next season. Thank you so much, New City, and thank you, Nate and Vanessa. Uh, praise God for that. Three years in, they're doing a killer job. Uh, if you're new to New City, uh, three years ago, Abiel and Emily uh, grew up in our ministry here at New City. It was a pleasure to raise money for them, uh, to, uh, to, to put hands on them, to pray for them, to send them out. We built out a storefront similar to this one uh, on San Mateo and Lomas, and they are just doing a great job, doing a great ministry, running into similar issues that we've run into, uh, particularly during this service. As, uh, children's space becomes kind of a capacity issue. They're experiencing all those growth pains as well. We're so grateful for their ministry. So before we get into like the teaching and stuff, we just hit pause for a second. It'd be great for all of us just to do that and to say thank you, uh, Father in heaven, for allowing us to multiply. Thank you for allowing us to expand your good news uh, in the city through Abiel and Emily's ministry. And I pray for a blessing over them that you would uh, would give them joy in the ministry as a gift. Uh, would you uh, fight against the enemy and his schemes and all the disrupting that he wants to do for their work? And I pray you give them success as they proclaim the good news about you and that people would respond and that sinners would be saved. And we ask for that in your name and for your glory, Lord Jesus. Amen. All right. Praise God for that. On to the study. Recapture the wonder. Okay. Daniel is the book we're studying. And Daniel's more of a record of life in exile, although it is a record of life in exile. It's giving us a little bit of, a, of an insight into, into Daniel and his boys, their kind of storyline as they travel through exile, at least in the part of the Daniel we're going to cover in this series, one to six, those chapters. It is more than that, though, more than a study. It's more than a, 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 an understanding of what Daniel's life was like. It is an example of how to live in exile. And Jeremiah gave some instruction about life in exile. You see this in Jeremiah 29.7. Seek the welfare of the city I have sent you into exile uh, and pray uh, to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Uh, this instruction of life in exile is to seek the welfare of the city, to take, take up residence, to marry and, and build houses and all that stuff. I mean, to be a part of the community, although at the same time maintaining your distinction from the community. And Christians are to embrace the motif of exile as a pattern for life. The New Testament gives us that encouragement. Peter says it this way, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to live out your Christian distinction. So in Daniel we learn how our devotion to the kingdom of God and our distinction from the kingdom of Babylon encourages us 
uh, uh, encourages both a detachment from Babylon while at the same time informing our love for it. And those two things have to exist within the Christian as we're living out our life in exile. We're embracing that motif. Uh, We are both uh, finding and encouraged to find a love for the cities that we've been planted into, uh, to love the the countries that we we dwell within, at the same time maintaining our distinction from it. Uh, Peter continues in 1 Peter 2, he says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Don't have time to unpack all this today. It's my belief that day of visitation here refers to on the day of conversion. The idea is that your good life, when lived in public, draws attention to who God is and eventually leads to people being converted. In other words, good news people raise uh, good news questions. Uh, they, he says, be prepared to give a defense for the hope that lives within you. Good news people raise good news questions and then have good news conversations that lead to conversion. And that's what happens there in First Peter. He says, in life in exile is to be one that seeks the good of others. So Christians, just to kind of make the point plain here, are not against the prevailing political movement, nor are they for it. Christians are for Jesus and His kingdom. To put it in the words of Jesus, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. So Christian people are people who have their eyes fixed on Jesus, uh, author, perfect of our faith, that they're seeking first the kingdom and His kingdom purpose, living on mission for Jesus. And sometimes it may appear as though uh, the Christian view is getting in line with the majority view or perhaps getting in line with the minority view. This is not the case. The Christian view does not get in line with any other view. Whenever there's agreement, it is welcome, but the Christian is fully devoted to Jesus and His mission. We have to always be aware that what we are about are Jesus and His mission that we serve first the kingdom. Our citizenship that we most, uh, uh, we, we most identify with is our citizenship in heaven. We belong to Him and His way of life, His kingdom reality. To put it in the words of Paul in Philippians, Therefore God has exalted Jesus, bestowed upon Him the name that is above every name. So the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He gets, he gets preeminence in our life. First devotion. We are about Jesus, our King, and His kingdom reality. And we're to be putting it on display for the world to see. And so when we're living out this life in exile, we can always be aware that we're looking not only for what we can plainly see with our, with our fleshly eyes, but we're looking for what, what you can't see with fleshly eyes. We're fixing our eyes not only on what is seen, but on what is unseen. You know, because what is, what is seen, it's temporary. What is unseen is eternal. And we're looking for the eternal sovereign purpose of God at work in the world. And in exile, we are looking for really two things, the sovereign hand of God and the common good. Like, where is God at work in the world, and how has He blessed us to be a blessing to the world? How are we seeking the good of the cities that we've been planted? How are we seeking the good of the nations in which we've been planted? So in Daniel 1, you saw the sovereign hand of God last week. We studied this uh, last week just to kind of revisit it. You read history in verse 1, earthly history, plain to see history. Everybody would agree to history at the time. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. But we have to also have eyes to see the unseen reality. And the unseen reality shows up in verse 2. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Both those realities are true. The one that you could see plainly in the flesh, that looked like Nebuchadnezzar, the king, sacked Jerusalem. Sure, it happened. 
but it didn't happen separate from the sovereign hand of God at work in the world. God gave over Jehoiakim. Uh, and so you see God's sovereign hand, but you also see in the opening pages of Daniel, Daniel 1, you see God empowering His people for the common good. So you see God sovereignly at work, and you see also the common good. You see this in Daniel 1.17, and this is a foreshadowing of what's going to happen here in today's text. As for these four youths, Daniel and his three buddies, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And and for, for the purpose of today's sermon, Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. He had a, a unique gifting, a unique capacity. So God blessed Daniel and his buddies to be a blessing to a pagan king. This is the way of exile. And so you see God is sovereignly in control, and then you see Christian or you know, God-fearing people looking for common good opportunities. So I took liberty here to outline the, the 49 verses of uh, chapter 2, which we'll be preaching through today. So buckle up. All right, we got a little bit of time. All right, so uh, the first section of Daniel 2 is fear and failure. Then we move into faith and courage, and then power and revelation, and then truth and perspective, and finally, praise and exaltation. This is kind of a rough outline of the flow of Daniel 2. And so if you want to follow along, you can open up the New City app and do that. Open up a Bible uh, or your favorite Bible app as you uh, would prefer. Fear and failure, the first section here. All right. See, I think in most worldly kingdoms, the true king is really power. Uh, the thing that people fear most is the loss of power. And nothing moves an earthbound thinker like the fear of losing power. And when power is your king, anxiety and brutality become your closest friends. And what you'll see is that Nebuchadnezzar has a throne in his own life, and the throne in his life is power. And he has a dream that has him thinking that he's going to lose power, which fills him full of anxiety. And that also leads to a very brutal sort of response. And we'll, we'll see that unfold here in the following verses. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. His spirit was troubled. He was full of anxiety, and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians and enchanters and sorcerers and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and it has troubled my spirit. Uh, uh, so I want to know the dream. So verse 4 then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. Remember this slide for later. And at verse 5, the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you don't make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. Uh, so he makes an impossible demand upon these uh, pagan sort of magicians and sorcerers and the like. Uh, he does so out of arrogance. He does so out of desperation. And I think arrogance flourishes in environments of power. And it is arrogance that drives us to expect the impossible out of mere humans. Uh, I, I just want to hit pause for a second in the, in the teaching of this particular text and just address something that I think is, is worthy of addressing. And I, I don't know exactly how to speak this way to the women in the room. And so if I'm just going to speak to the men in the room for a second, because it seems to be this narrative doesn't just apply to men and women, but I only, as a man, can only, I, I, I see it most often and most frequently, and, 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 you know, played out among uh, my male counterparts in leadership, that, that, that power becomes like a real thing for men. And the loss of power, the feeling that you've lost power, becomes a, a real fear for men. 
And I have seen it in many households, in many marriages, where when a man starts to feel like he's losing power, whether power at work or power in the context of the home or power in parenting, what begins to happen is he begins to get really anxious and worried and stressed. And in that anxiety and that stress and that worry, what ends up happening is there's a lot of, uh, of ridiculous expectations being placed upon people in his sphere of influence. Uh, stupid expectations of a spouse, stupid expectations of his children, stupid expectations of those who, who, sub, who are subordinates at work, just unreasonable expectations. What sometimes usually follows that is brutality because there's nothing that like the fear of losing power. And, and my, my, uh, my suspicion is there's something in Nebuchadnezzar's sort of personality that might speak to some of us, not just the men in the room, but uh, the women as well. Uh, look at verse 10. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. I mean, both interpreting the dream and also uh, telling you what the dream is. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing uh, of any magician or encanter or Chaldean. You don't have to be a believer to recognize the need for the supernatural when the limits of human capacity are exposed. And what's happening here is uh, the limits of human capacity are being exposed. The thing the king asks is difficult. No one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not in the flesh. One commentator said, now think for a second. Why does the biblical writer want you to hear that? Not because in helpless frustration they so much as call the king an irrational royal nutcase, but because their words are a confession of the failure of paganism. There, there is just not the ability to do the impossible, they say. We know, as Christians, that we worship a God who specializes in the impossible. And here, here we find a real moment of failure. Both the fear of Nebuchadnezzar and the failure of pagan religion to answer the most, uh, the most important question on the table. The Bible's saying something, I think, here like this. Do you see... Paganism is helpless to save you. Do not be enamored with the glitz and the glamour of Babylon. It is an empty promise. So the dominant theme here in this text is fear and failure. The fear of, of a leader who's worried about losing his power, the failure of his pagan religion to answer his most fundamental questions. And when the powerful are desperate and they're stricken with fear, they're tempted to brutalize those around them, to affirm their power, and that is the pinnacle of arrogance. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious, and he commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. And so you see the first section here is, is fear and failure. The fear of a king and the failure of his, his, his religion. But then we meet faith and courage. And faith and courage, the faith, the faith and courage of Daniel and his companions, Daniel and his boys. You see, in the kingdom of God, our true power is faith. That's our true power. You see, Nebuchadnezzar had on the throne his real king, which was power. But we, we know that real power comes through faith. It's not in our capacity, it's in his capacity. It's not in our ability, it's in, it's in his ability. It's not in our understanding, it's in his understanding. It's not in, our, it's not in what we have to offer, so if what he has already offered to us. And so Daniel replied, replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, who was sent to kill him. 
he declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. You see some boldness and some courage here on Daniel's part. Not having already known the dream, not already having the interpretation, but stepping out in faith and saying, my God can do the impossible. I want an appointment with the king. See, faith is believing that no situation is too desperate for God. No matter how dark your story is, no matter how dark your narrative is, no matter how bewildering life in exile becomes for you, that it's never too desperate for God. That He's powerful and He intervenes in human history and He changes things, He changes history, He changes hearts, He changes circumstances. What is impossible for us is alone is, is possible with God. And we can confess, we can confess Luke 137 is true for us, for nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with Him. Now, it's, it's just difficult sometimes to believe that. It really is. Like when, you, when times are tough and life is dark, it, it, you, know, you can easily be sitting there and go, that's easy to say, pastor. It's easy to preach. Yeah, nothing's impossible with God, but you don't know my situation. You don't know my circumstance. You don't know my challenge or what I'm up against. Well, I think there are two things that embolden Daniel. One of the reasons that he was able to take this, this big step is that he already had existing community and prayer as part of his regular life. And he leans into those two realities, community and prayer. In fact, those are the things that embolden his faith. And so he, he makes this, this daring uh, appointment with the king. And then you find in verse 17, Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, his community group. And he went back to his community group and said, I got an issue. And the community group talked about it. And he told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. And he said, my community group, I've got an issue. It's big. It's significant. And we all need to be praying together about this and seeking God's mercy in this. So that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. While, when life in exile has you feeling a little desperate, my encouragement, a strong encouragement to you is embolden your faith with community and prayer. I'm just going to hit pause here for a second and just kind of get real with you about this, this, this thing. There, there's a pattern in, in life that develops at the garden, okay? There's a pattern in life that developed at the garden that you and I are, are tempted to live, and we shouldn't be living this pattern. The pattern is that sin always drives you to isolation. And I have seen this over and over and over again in pastoral leadership. When somebody has a darkness in their life, a, 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 you know, a, a black blemish on their reputation, something happens to them that's disruptive or disturbing, they isolate and withdraw from community. I mean, Adam and Eve did this in the garden. They went into hiding. They hid themselves from one another. And they hid themselves from God. It is human nature. And I'm going to ask you to do something that violates what you want to do. Because what you want to do when sin enters your life or, or a dark circumstance enters your life, what you want to do is withdraw. And people say foolish things like, when I get my life right, I'll get back into church. Listen, if you could get your life right, Jesus wouldn't have left heaven, come to earth, and have lived as a substitute for you. You can't get your life right. That's the very confession we make as Christians. Like, you cannot get your life right. You are a sinner desperately in need of grace. And so what you need to be doing instead of withdrawing from community is seeking out community filling your life with people who are prayerful, who are praying for you and seeking God's miracle. And so my strong 
plea to you is not to withdraw from community when life gets hard, but instead do the opposite of your instinct, which is to draw near to people, confess your sins, pray for one another, talk about the urgency of your life and the problems of your life so you might receive the miracles that God has for you. And they happen through those two contexts, community and prayer. All right, my soapbox is done. All right, all right, I'm ready. I'm ready to preach, okay? Woo! That felt good. <sighs> Look, we can have courage because we are not worried about being dethroned in the same way that Nebuchadnezzar was worried. We know who is on the throne, and we know his kingdom is unshakable. And this is the confession that is made to God. When, when what we see is not necessarily the petition prayer, but we see the praise prayer. And the praise prayer of Daniel starts in verse 20. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets them up. Listen, Daniel's going to go in to, a, to, to address the king, and he goes in with this attitude that, this, this King, you're only in power because God has allowed you to be in power. And the God that I serve is really the one that's in power. He gives wisdom to the wise. In other words, I didn't come to this on my own. He gave it to me. And knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. Now here, here these next few lines. They may speak to you. He knows what is in the darkness. He knows, he knows what's in your darkness. He knows what's in the darkness. And the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we ask for uh, we ask of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. One commentator says, here in Daniel 2, it's as if the Holy Spirit reaches out an invisible hand from the Bible page, grabs you by the collar, and whispers, Now what should you say to this? Is Daniel the only one who owes praise? Where in your life have you seen the sovereign hand of God at work? As you begin to look at your past and your narrative and the prayers that God has answered, the way that He's shown up, the way that He's been present in your life throughout time, one of the greatest gifts to you as a Christian is being able sometimes to look back on your life and just evaluate, God, where were you? And then to watch the history of God showing up on the pages of your story over and over and over again, His sovereign hand at work. I think Christian courage finds its confidence in faith, and that's where, that's where Daniel finds his confidence. You see Daniel confidently here in verse 24. Therefore Daniel went in, went in to Ant. Tariach, and uh, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. It reminds me this kind of boldness that Daniel has in going for the king and just being very bold about his faith and very bold about his position uh, of Romans 8.31, what then shall we say <laughs> to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? You know, if you believe that, if God was for you, who could be against you? I mean, just for a second, take the first part of that statement. Uh, if you really believe God was for you, 
How would that change your gait? How would that change your walk? How would that change your confidence? How would that change your courage? How would that change your faithful expression in this world if you believe that God was for you? Daniel says he removes kings and sets up kings. I mean, he's standing on solid ground, which leads us to the next section. So we have fear and failure. Fear and failure is the fear uh, of, of, of Nebuchadnezzar, the failure of the pagan uh, leadership, the pagan sort of religion, uh, faith and courage of Daniel and his boys praying to God and asking God and seeking his favor. Now we have power and revelation. And God, listen, God empowers his people to be a blessing. And so Daniel 2, 26, the king declared to Daniel, whose name was uh, Belshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise man, enchanters, uh, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known, <laughs> and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the vision are, of your head are, are these. And he explains the vision. Nebuchadnezzar had seen a very frightening vision of an image that had scared him. The image was, had a head of gold in, in, in descending order of quality of value and uh, capacity, gold, silver, bronze, uh, iron, and then iron mixed with clay in the feet. And he saw this sort of this, this creature destroyed by this stone that was cut out in some supernatural way. And that stone sort of crushed this idol. And he had been stricken with fear that he was going to lose power. And here God gives Daniel the ability to interpret the dream and to tell him the dream. I want to hit pause here for a second to say believers have been blessed to be a blessing. God gave Daniel a very specific gifting here uh, to interpret dreams, and he gave him this dream for the benefit of a pagan king. And it's a reminder of Genesis 12, 3, that when God began to form his family around Abraham and his seed, he said to Abraham, I'm going to bless every family on the earth through you. I'm going to bless you to be a blessing to the families of the earth in Genesis 12, 3. And God has done that. He's blessed you and me to be a blessing to others. And Jesus encourages and I think empowers us to, to bless even our enemies. I want you to think about the words of Jesus here, just, just to hit, hit pause for a second. I mean, and Nebuchadnezzar is not a good dude, and, and he's, he has not done kind things, and he is not somebody whose uh, authority was one that would be easily followed. Uh, he's, 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 not a, uh, he's, he's not a friend of the countries he's conquered. But in Matthew 5.44, we hear from Jesus, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Paul says in Romans 12, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. God has, has blessed us in a myriad of, of ways. And it would, it would be important for you to hit pause and just evaluate all the ways in which God has blessed you and the ways in which he's blessed you to be a blessing to other people. One way God has blessed all of us is he's blessed us with revelation about the true nature of things. You know, in Daniel 2.28, Daniel says, there's a God of heaven in heaven who reveals mysteries. And God has revealed a lot of mysteries to you and me. And there are many people who are desperately looking for answers to the big questions of life. I mean, they're looking for them all the time. They're desperately actually looking for them. And they've experienced the same reality that Nebuchadnezzar has experienced. 
Daniel answered the king and said, No wise man, enchanter, magician, or astrologer can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. There is a limit to pagan religion's ability to answer the fundamental problems of life, like, where did I come from? Why am I here? Where am I going? And fundamentally, Nebuchadnezzar was worried about his future. Where am I going? What's the future reality? Am I okay? Am I going to be safe? Am I going to lose my power? And he's, he, is, he is stricken with anxiety because he doesn't know where he's come from, who he is, why he's here, where he's going. And Christianity answers those most fundamental questions. We know where we came from. We know why we're here to love God and to love our neighbor. I mean, God has, has brought us here to worship Him and adore Him and celebrate Him and to love other people. And we know where we're going. There's an unbreakable kingdom ahead of us, a place where tears are no more and death is no more and God undoes all the bad stuff of the world. He makes everything new again. Like we know that we are headed towards an unshakable kingdom and that our, that our eternity is certain in Jesus. So we walk with a certain level of like certainty and courage in this life that you just can't walk in unless you have Jesus and know the end of things. Look, you would think that, that the displaced exiles would be the most troubled by these questions, but they are the most settled in this narrative. Daniel and his his boys have more reason and more cause to be concerned about their own future well-being than anybody else in the narrative. Yet they're walking with such courage and strength. And the people who are in power, the ones who are unsettled and worried, I think there are certain truths that change our perspective and replace our fear with faith. And that's what leads us into the next section of our, of our teaching. So you have fear and failure. You have the, the fear that Nebuchadnezzar is stricken with about his uncertain future and the failure of pagan religions to answer his most fundamental questions. Then you have faith and courage of Daniel seeking God. Then you have power and revelation, God bringing about revelation to, to Daniel. And then you have truth and perspective. And one truth that's really fundamental we have to keep revisiting is that every earthly power is under the sovereign authority of God. Like that is a truth that we have to hold on to. Now, I want you to listen to Daniel 2, 36 and 37. A few minutes ago, I asked you to remember that verse 4 from, uh, from earlier when, when, the, when, when the magicians come up to King Nebuchadnezzar and they say, Oh, King, live forever in Aramaic. I want you to see how different that address is to the address that Daniel gives when he gives to the king. It says, This was the dream. Now we will tell the king his interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom... The God of heaven has given the kingdom. He begins his address with the king and saying, I want you to, I want to remind you, king, just so subtly works it in. God has given you the authority you have. Without him, you don't have it. The power and the might and the glory and into those and into whose hand he has given uh, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. He begins to explain that this is a progression of kingdoms. Your kingdom is the head of gold, and then each kingdom gets progressively worse as time goes on, which is the perspective. The truth is that every earthly power is under God's sovereign authority. The perspective is every earthly power is forever diminishing and temporary. And that is the, the key to understanding the vision. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and then so on. Every preceding kingdom is inferior to the the one that came before it. And this rock that was not cut by human hands that destroys these kingdoms is is illustrative of the fact that no kingdom is forever. 
Uh, the way that Dale Davis says it is, is this way, and I couldn't say it better than the commentator, so I'm just going to say what he said. He said, this is saying something important to contemporary readers about the pattern of human history. Now hear this. On the whole, history degenerates. It carries its own germ of disintegration that becomes increasingly apparent. There is then no progress gene implanted in history's womb that ensures some sort of infallible upward movement. Some may complain that this destroys optimism, only empty optimism. True optimism comes from an indestructible kingdom, not from a defunct but defiled historical process. You cannot write history with an uppercase H and think that it will save anything. And so this is not going to require a whole lot of, you know, uh, calorie burning for you to think about uh, human history in a sweeping fashion and see that kingdoms don't last forever and that they tend to have uh, a high point, uh, a peak, a valley, and then they eventually are no longer in existence. This is the pattern of human history. There's, there's, there's no progress gene written into the kingdoms of this world. See, exiles live with an eternal perspective and hold to the truth that God's kingdom is unshakable. And so we get to the end of the interpretation in verse 44 of Daniel 2, and he says, In those days, and in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdoms be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand and that it broke in pieces the iron, bronze, clay, and silver, and gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and it, in its interpretation, sure. We can walk into the future with a God like this. He is showing us that history is going toward his unshakable kingdom. He is assuring us that even though life seems uncertain at times, we follow a God whose kingdom is forever, so we can keep on going with hope and without fear. I wrote that slide, but I said, it's too long, but I couldn't say it any better, so there it is. It reminded me of Luke chapter 1, verses 32 and 33. You know, we read this around Christmas time every year. Jesus will be great, will be called Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom, there will, there will be no, of his kingdom there will be no end. The commentator says this dream interpretation also speaks to us in our fears. It says to us, don't be impressed with human political power. It, it, is, it is also so fleeting. Do not fear it. Daniel 2 says, look at it square in the eye and repeat after Jesus. You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. You see Jesus even in his trial looking at earthly political power and reminding political power, your power is fleeting and temporary and not absolute. But God's kingdom is forever, it's unshakable, and if you look close enough, you'll see his sovereign hand involved in all of human history. 
So we see here in the story, fear and failure. The fear of Nebuchadnezzar, the failure of his pagan gods. We see faith and courage, the faith of Daniel and his, uh, and his buddies going to God in prayer and courageously facing the king and his rage. Then you see power in revelation and truth in perspective. And God is giving us insight into how the world works and what's really at work in the world. Even though we see things through eyes of flesh, there's a whole spiritual dimension at play that we have to have eyes open to see so we can see God at work even in our own lives. And I want to remind you that in exile, we're looking for those two things. We're looking for those two realities. We're looking for the sovereign hand of God all over our lives and the lives of the world. And we're looking for the common good, the place that we can serve, the place that we can do good for the world world, that we can offer what God has blessed us, you know, the blessings that God has blessed us with. And so you see in Daniel 2.46, a remarkable turn of events. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel. He's not yet worshiping Daniel's God, but he's worshiping Daniel. The fall on his face here is the same terminology used later when he commands that everybody fall on their faces and worship the idol made to look like him. And this is the same kind of fall on your face you see all over the pages of the Bible that refers to idolatrous worship. And he is so gripped by God and his power displayed in Daniel that he falls on his face and recognizes at least Daniel worships a sovereign God and commanded that an offering, an incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is a God of gods, the Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. And so you see the sovereign hand of God, but you also see God gifting Daniel and his boys for the common good. You see God showing up, and you know the Bible says that the hearts of kings are like water in the palms of God's hand. And you see that at work here, and Nebuchadnezzar bowing down in submission to at least sort of beginning to recognize the sovereign power of God in his life. And then you see the common good being offered up by Daniel in verses 48 and following. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and the chief uh, prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel made a request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. Uh, one commentator said, it's, it, it is not coincidental that the chapter ends with Daniel and his friends promoted to responsible positions within the Babylonian system. These men didn't isolate themselves from the kingdom of this world as they waited for, God's, uh, for God to establish his kingdom. Rather, they poured themselves into seeking the welfare of their temporary home in Babylon. In other words, they lived out Jeremiah 29.7. They sought the welfare of the city. And that, my friends, I think is helpful for you and me in a number of ways. One is, as we try to recapture the wonder in our own lives, one of the ways that we do that is by surrounding ourselves with biblical community, uh, going to God in prayer, recognizing that God knows what's going on in the darkness, that He's the light, having confidence and courage to face the hard and difficult things of life, and then saying to God and saying to others, you know, God, what have you blessed me with? I'm worshiping you. What have you blessed me with? And saying to the world, I am here to bless the world the way you have blessed me. And it, it, when it all boils down, you know, to it, like Christians don't have to walk with fear. They don't have to walk with anxiety. They don't have to live as though life is out of control. God is on the throne. He's good. He's blessed you. And so my prayer for you is that your eyes would be open. That you'd see a sovereign hand. You'd see how he's working, even in the darkness. And you can know that no matter how dark your life is, he, he knows and he understands. And he has tremendous capacity 
to turn that darkness into a blessing for you and for other people. And so, you know, trust him. Trust him. Father, I pray for that. I pray that you would give us um, the courage of Daniel. Boldness. You know, Daniel's looking an earthly power and death right in the eyes and is not afraid because he knows who you are. And I pray you'd reveal yourself to us that way, that we would know who you are. That we'd walk with courage. Not arrogance, but with courage. That you would give us a confidence in you and your ability. And I know there's heavy stuff in this room. I know there's darkness in this room. And there are, there are lives right now that are just, just in dark spots. We confess right now that you are light. You've overcome the darkness. The darkness cannot comprehend who you are and what you've done. And so I pray by a miracle of your grace that you shine a light in dark places today, right now in this room. Reveal yourself, bring courage, bring boldness to our lives that we might step out in faith and love other people the way you've loved us. I don't know what you want to do with us, but we, uh, well, I'll just confess for all of us that we are, um, we are clay in your hands. Mold us and shape us and, and, and do whatever, whatever you want you know, whatever you want to do with us, do it. Thank you, Father. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.